Hello and welcome. We are Restoration Church in beautiful Prescott, Arizona. Thank you for joining us. My name is Nate Huss and I am stoked you are tuning in to our teaching of the week. If you are new, so glad you found us. If you haven't already and would like to learn a little bit more about us, jump over to restorationaz.org. All right, let's grab our Bibles and dive into this week's teaching. Uh, if you are new with us, my name is Landon, and I'm, I'm thankful to be one of the, the team members here, and we're going to dive into our, our third week now in what we call a, a practice on the topic of fasting. And you might think that sounds a little bit crazy, this idea of not eating food, and it is a little bit crazy and uncomfortable, but today we'll spend a, a little bit of time talking about why we think that's worthwhile and uh, beyond worthwhile, really, really good. So in our, our first week, we kind of built a foundation on spiritual disciplines of reading the scriptures, prayer, fasting is one of them, silence and solitude, things we do maybe in quote unquote religion to draw nearer to God and how often we can make the mistake of kind of engaging in spiritual disciplines to earn something from God. We've talked about how that is the wrong way to approach fasting. This isn't about earning anything from God. It's about doing this for Jesus and to be with Jesus. And that led us to last week as well, talking about the presence of God that we get to benefit from and and find blessing in as we engage in fasting. This week, we'll we'll talk about growing in holiness, and that fasting leads us to that. Specifically, we're going to kind of discuss what happens within our bodies, spiritually and physically, while we fast. And so, uh, many of you are in our practice groups. You have the the practice booklets. I want to, again, acknowledge uh, John Mark Comer, who I'll quote a lot today, and Practicing the Way as an organization for providing uh, really just helpful resourcing and content. And maybe you were blessed by that this week and, and did fast in your groups or on your own. I did. For me, it was on Tuesday. And, you know, it started really well for like 47 seconds until my many children woke up and they said, Dad, we want waffles with butter and syrup and cinnamon and they smelled good while I made them those waffles. And then they finished the waffles. And I put the never-ending pile of dishes into the sink, which my poor wife dealt with throughout the day because I then left. And then I, I made them all of their lunches. And so food was on the mind to start the day. I dropped the kids off at school. Then I drove from there to here. And I passed Taco Don's. And I thought, a chorizo burrito with some eggs and potatoes and cheese and chilies with a a side of chips and salsa. Sounds fantastic, but I'm not going to stop. Then I came here where I work about half the time. And I I work where there's a coffee shop. And they make really delicious sandwiches with bacon. That's just the aroma of my office is bacon while I'm attempting to fast. And that was a little bit challenging until about noon. And then it actually turned into a really, I'll even say pleasant, which sounds kind of crazy to me for fasting, but a really pleasant and and more so beneficial uh, day that I I really enjoyed. I had kind of joked in our our past two weeks that in my previous experiences fasting, it had gone really badly. And that was often because of kind of my personal stupidity. In high school, I remember reading about fasting and deciding, oh, this would be a good idea. And so I picked the absolute perfect time to to give this a shot. I didn't put much thought into it. 
which really in life, sometimes I don't. I'm just like, that's a great idea. We're going to do that. So fasting, I decided, should happen during basketball camp as a high school student. And being on the basketball team at Prescott High School, we had to run the, the camp for the, the next, I guess, not generation, but the younger kids in the community from uh, 9 a.m. till 12 a.m. So we did that. Then we got a one-hour lunch break, which was worthless for me because I was fasting. And then we had our own camp, which we like to refer to as Hell Week, because really it was just conditioning. It was awful for, for hours. And by the end of that, I kind of thought I was, I was going to die. It was not a pleasant experience. I got nothing out of it. I didn't like Jesus anymore at the end of this, maybe slightly less. It was, it was not good. That was young and dumb, Landon. And I realized this past Tuesday, as I was fasting, that... There was a big difference this time. There were still things that were not pleasant. But the primary difference between 16-year-old Landon and now Landon was the why behind my fasting. When I was fasting in high school, it was because of Jesus, because of the sacrifice Jesus had made, I felt like I too needed to make a sacrifice. Because Jesus was obedient and called us to obedience, I felt like I too needed to be obedient. Because the scriptures talked about this, I felt like I needed to listen to what I have read. And those things are true now, but there's a big shift now in my life, and we talked about this in the last week or two, to where fasting now is driven not just because of Jesus, but for Jesus. There's a shift to be with Jesus to actually just experience the goodness of Jesus, the, the blessing of, of simply being near him, of in, enjoying who he is. I think we often have such a minuscule, really boring concept of who Jesus is when he's, in fact, so good. If we read uh, Matthew in, in Matthew chapter 16, we read Jesus saying and teaching, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. I've, I've shared before how I have uh, had a grandfather who I don't really, didn't get along with super well. This is my dad's father. We uh, called him Papa, and I shared how one time I was, I was golfing with Papa, and we got done, and we were talking, and he was giving me bad life advice, which was his norm. And at one point, he goes, I'm so tired of all of this Jesus self-sacrifice bullshit. You can fill in the last two letters. And so Papa and I talked about that, and there, there's something about Jesus that Papa didn't understand that many of us don't understand. And that's what I just said, that he's actually good. It's not just right, it's not just correct, he's not our ticket to heaven where we'll fly away oh glory one day and we go up to some ethereal spiritual place. He's actually good. Jesus is the source of all good the source of all fun, of all health, of, of the best in our bodies. We probably don't think about him this way, but he is, I would say, the most brilliant chef. He's the best farmer. He's the, the most genius architect and engineer, the most creative and pleasing artist and painter, musician, designer of instruments. 
certainly the most capable healer, the most knowledgeable about our bodies. I can guarantee Jesus would be the best, this is crazy, ready? Stand-up comedian. He invented humor. Like, have you ever thought about Jesus in that way? I'm guessing no, because you probably don't think of Jesus as fun, let alone funny, let alone able to make you laugh, but he is. One of the things Satan wants is for us to just minimize Jesus into this boring, spiritual, religious, lifeless concept. But he's got the greatest strength. He's the strongest warrior, the wisest judge, the most capable relational builder. Like everything good you can think of is sourced from Jesus. This is what Papa missed. That Jesus is the source of good. So that he indeed does call us into self-denial, self-sacrifice, even suffering. But we can always know when Jesus calls us somewhere that the end result is good. Even if it goes through self-denial and sacrifice and even suffering. Paul talks about this in uh, his letter to the church in Colossae, Colossians 1, 15. I'm going to read it. He says this, Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that, may, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself by making peace through the blood of his cross, whether things on earth or things in heaven. We often take this to be just spiritual and it's not. It has to do with our bodies, it has to do with our earth, it has to do with the world as a whole. So why is self-sacrifice, why is denying self and taking up our cross worthwhile? is isn't just because of Jesus, it's for Jesus, because he is good. And his presence, what we experience, is, is unmatched. There's no one like him. To, to recap, as I, I said earlier, we're, we're discussing, and this is in your practice book, it's four different reasons for fasting. First, we talked about last week, to offer ourselves to Jesus. Today, we'll, we'll talk about growing in holiness. And the next two weeks will be to amplify, amplify our prayers and to stand with the poor. We ended last week with this theology of the body, discussing... The, the idea within the scriptures that there is not the separation from our, our bodies and our spirits and our humanity, but the scriptures refer to us as a whole person and our, our bodies are a part of the whole person, a good part, a part that God designed, a part that God died for, a part that he talks about, <coughs> excuse me, being resurrected in the end. Our, our bodies are a part of the plan. Yet many of us have missed out on that as we've read the scriptures or been talking about the scriptures. The body's important. So let's take a, a few minutes to talk about what's actually happening in our bodies as we fast. And there's, there's three distinct 
physiological stages your body goes through while fasting. The, the first we're all very familiar with in the first four hours or so after a meal, your body feeds on the energy from the food in your stomach. We're used to that, we're comfortable with it, we understand it, we don't even think about it, and it happens. The, the second stage is somewhere around 16 hours in, so if you eat at 7 p.m., maybe 11 a.m. the next day, is, is when your, your body transitions to ketosis, and now it's no longer uh, burning the, the glucose within you, but it starts to, to eat on and, and build off of the, the fat. And that's a healthy process for us. And then there's a, a third stage with a fancy word called uh, autophagy. said that wrong. Auto, how do I say this? I don't know. Just look it up. This is the moment when, you know, every now and then Siri just like answers for me when I don't mean for her to. It would have been good here. But uh, some doctors refer to this as like our bodies taking out the trash. It's pretty miraculous when you, when you think about it that God designed our bodies with this inherent ability to rid us of the unhealthy thing. This is the, the part of the process 24 hours in or so when our bodies naturally begin to feed on. The Greek word means to literally feed on self. The, the cells that are dying or dead or malfunctioning or distorted. This is where cancer comes from and different diseases. And our body has a natural ability to fight against, or in some cases, even reverse those things that we might be facing. If you, you put aside the religious, the Christian side of fasting, the spiritual side, uh, the, the medical world will tell you of all kinds of benefits of fasting. Cleansing our body of toxins, increasing our metabolism, it can reduce weight, can impact our insulin levels, reduce your heart rate, slow aging, plenty of, of benefits. And yet, and this is the key, while we are fasting as a family, as a group of people, a church following Jesus together, while that's great and is true and is happening, we want to keep first things first. The reason, the why for our fasting is to be with Jesus. And it's not a dichotomy. It doesn't mean it's not healthy for our physical bodies. It is. But really, it's healthy holistically for our humanity, how God has designed and made us. Pope Benedict comments on this. He says this, In our own day, fasting seems to have lost something of its spiritual meaning and has taken on in a culture characterized by the search for material well-being, a therapeutic value for the care of one's body. Fasting certainly brings benefits to physical well-being, but for believers, it is in the first place a therapy to heal all that prevents them from conformity to the will of God. We can kind of think of this as this line of growing in holiness, becoming more and more human the way we were made to be, embracing God's design and intent. Holiness is kind of one of those Church words that maybe seems overused, never really explains, very distant. We don't actually understand it. I love how John Mark Comer talks about it. He says that it's a short or a shorthand way to understand a biblical theology of holiness is as wholeness. I love that. Holiness is wholeness. It's a return. It's a holistic health of what God's design is for us. He continues to say, in the same way that fasting is your body's way of purifying and purging your body of the zombie cells that are killing you, so too fasting is your soul's way of purifying and purging your whole person of self-defeating cycles of sin and shame. Have you ever experienced self-defeating cycles of sin and shame? 
If your answer is no, you're in the midst of one. (laughs) We've all been there. We need help with that. We're not strong enough, and we're not smart enough, even if you think you're the exception. You're not strong enough or smart enough to defeat sin on your own. That's never been God's design. We need the, the power of God, and we often struggle to be led by the power of God because our tendency is to be led by the power of self, where there's actual more so weakness than strength. St. Leo the Great from the 5th century comments on this connection and fasting. He says, fasting gives strength against sin. It represses evil desires. It repels temptation. It humbles pride. It cools anger and fosters all the inclinations of a goodwill, even unto the practice of every virtue. As I said earlier, in many Christian circles, we're really fond of this idea of doing soul work, working on the spiritual side. We think of maybe you have a devotional time or you're here right now and it's a spiritual time you set aside. We're in Bible studies, prayer, silence, solitude, whatever it is, and we consider those things as tools or time set apart to work on our souls. But the, the biblical idea is we're working really on ourselves, which the soul's apart and the body's apart, and it's all connected. We don't compartmentalize those. One of the, the greatest misconceptions, and maybe what I should say is actually one of the most damaging things we've come to understand in the church, is the separation of the physical and the spiritual. We've talked how that's rooted in Plato's philosophy, how it's been kind of uh, become permeated within our interpretation of the, the scriptures. It's often referred to as, as Gnosticism, as, as Paul writes about it in the New Testament. But, but people literally died throughout church history to protect the church from marrying this idea, this philosophy and theology, that the spiritual is good and the physical is bad. Like Not only is it wrong, it's really damaging. It's going to greatly negatively impact how we understand God, how we understand and relate to other people, and even how we understand ourselves. We have to understand that the body always has been and always is, will be, part of God's design. It's part of what he said is good. It's part of what he died to save because we're a whole person. Yet so often we get stuck kind of waiting for anxiously hoping for this divine separation where our souls fly away and our bodies are no more. I think the scriptures can be a little bit confusing on this too at first glance, especially in English. Many cultures and thousands of years and many languages removed. We can kind of misunderstand some of what is said. I want to look at that. For instance, last week we read Paul writes to the church in Corinth and he says, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You've perhaps heard that. Meaning your body's a home for the Spirit. That sounds important. Sounds like God cares about and values our bodies. He has a role for our bodies to play. And then we also read a different side of things where Paul will refer to our body as this body of death. I want to read it in Romans chapter 7. He writes to the church in Rome beginning in verse 15. Paul says, For I do not understand what I am doing because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. 
So now I am no longer the one doing it, but it is sin living in me. Notice that sin can live within us and we can also be the temple for the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, for I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. That's a very important word. Keep that word flesh in mind. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Now, if I do what I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but it is the sin that lives in me. So I discover this principle. When I want to do what is good, evil is with me. For in my inner self, I joyfully agree with God's law, but I see a different law on the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this dying body? And that's where we get a lot of the concepts of our bodies. Who will rescue me from this worthless thing? Who will rescue me from this damaging biological structure I'm stuck in? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind, I myself am a slave to the law of God, but with my flesh, keyword flesh, we'll get back to this in a second, I am a slave to the law of sin. So it seems like Paul has these two worlds body is a temple and our body is a dying biological containment system for our souls which is it and throughout the scriptures the the answer is it is both we simultaneously live with the flesh that leads us into sin and our body is part of God's design that houses the Holy Spirit and, and provides for us this, this opportunity for union with Christ. This, this next part's really important. Have you ever been in a uh, conversation or something, and, and by the end of it, you go like, ah, it's just semantics. Like, ah, we're, we're just talking about words. They don't really matter. We're saying the same thing. That is often very true, and sometimes that could be true with the scriptures. Other times, a hermeneutic or a healthy biblical interpretation based on the, the culture and the context and the language of what we're reading and the translation process is really important. And this is one of the times where that is really key. The, the Greek word here used for flesh is not referring to just our physical bodies, saying that our physical bodies that God designed are bad. Again, the, the scriptures from cover to cover paint a picture of us as whole beings. Human is body, heart, soul, mind combined into one so that we're a body that is a temple for the Holy Spirit and we're a body that has this thing called the flesh that is contaminated with this fatal disease we call sin. And both of those are true at the same time. Again, the, the word in English that we see is flesh. It's not synonymous with body as we see it. It's, it's flesh. It has to do with the whole person. Some translations, depending on the translation you're in, might refer to it as the sinful nature or the, the nature of, of self-indulgence. Sometimes we mistakenly in the church world call it our human nature which actually is pretty false because God designed humanity. So it's not a human nature that's bad. It's the flesh within us that is. Comer describes this as well. He says this. It's the instinctual drives in our body for things like food, sleep, sex, self-preservation, and instant gratification 
that have overpowered our will and bent our heart away from love and turned it in on itself. But it's also more immaterial drives too, our desires for security and safety and affection and esteem and power and control. And in of themselves, those are not bad things. Most of those are actually good things. But they're all things that are very prone to getting twisted and distorted. This is what sin does. I love how how C.S. Lewis frames sin. He calls it being bent. It's one of the best descriptions. Something that has a great design and it works functionally really well. It could be aesthetically pleasing, but then it's bent. And you still know what it is and it still might work, but not the way it's supposed to. This is what sin does to our humanity. It doesn't break it, but it bends it. Augustine calls the flesh our disordered desires. Comer continues and says this, our fight is not against the body, it's for the body. Our fight is against the flesh. That's the key that we have to step back and understand. Physical is not bad, spiritual is not the good, but we have the flesh within us, which is bad, and impacts the whole of our humanity and leads us away from God's intent. And then the scriptures, thankfully, give us a plan for what to do with this flesh that so negatively impacts us. It's really soft and easy and a gentle plan for us, very easy to execute. Here's what it looks like in Galatians. Paul writes, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. This is where Jesus says, deny yourself and take up your cross. Paul writes, to the the church in Colossae. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. There's a word picture here. Nail your flesh, not your body, but the part within us that leads us to sin. Nail that to the cross. Be done with it. Put it to death and let it be replaced by God's intent for you, by the power of his, his spirit. How, though? Have you ever tried to just defeat sin? It's like a young kid wrestling with his dad. He can't win. It's really fun when my son wrestles with me because you just stiff arm him, throw him, toss him. There's no chance. Have you ever thought you could get over some part of of sin on your own? Like, oh, I'm not going to lust anymore. I'm just going to willpower that one. How is that going? Or gossip, selfishness. Like, like, how are you doing trying to defeat your own sin? And if you think you're doing well, it has you in a very powerful cycle of sin and shame right now. It's one of the the things Satan does really quickly and really effectively. He can make us religiously arrogant to think that we're smart enough and strong enough to defeat sin on our own. Because if we think we might have a chance in this battle, we don't go to Jesus for help. We're confident in ourselves. Paul continues to, to talk about this just one chapter later in his letter to the church in Rome. He says this, if you live according to the flesh, it's different than our, our bodies, right? If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, those are three really important words, by the Spirit, You put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Comer talks about this verse. He says, we can't use the flesh to defeat the flesh. Willpower is not enough. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. 
In our, our welcome lunch last week, I was asked the question about our theology and uh, the Holy Spirit at one point, and I, I talked about how I think in Prescott, not in all cases, but in many, the Holy Spirit is the most neglected person of the Trinity. And yet, the Holy Spirit was the power that Jesus relied on for his life. And here we are, not Jesus, and we think it's not a big deal to just ignore the power of the Spirit that we actually fully depend on. Again, Satan can make us really religiously arrogant in our ability to, to fight sin, to fight Satan. Comer continues, willpower is great, he says, but it only works on very small changes. Willpower versus a plate of cookies is one thing, but willpower versus a pornography addiction or drugs or alcohol or outbursts of anger based on childhood trauma, willpower doesn't stand a chance. And if that sounds defeatist, it is. And when we embrace defeat, that's when the good things start to happen as we follow Jesus. I might go so far as to say only when we embrace defeat is the door opened to Jesus really working in our lives. Because until we do so, we're still fighting for control. Until we do so, we're still living based on our power and trusting self. As, as followers of Jesus, we need to learn to depend on and to really source, outsource, if you will, the power of the Spirit. And some of the ways to do that are spiritual disciplines. And one of the most effective of those is fasting. It's one of the best ways we can learn to depend on and watch and experience the power of the Spirit instead of the power of self, which is a myth. Fasting is a way to feed your spirit and to starve your flesh. This is one of the ways we're thinking about this. I'll close uh, with this in the next few minutes. Four things. We talked about what's happening in our physical body. Now let's talk about what's happening kind of spiritually because all of these matter together as we fast. Number one, it's weaning us off what some psychologists call the pleasure principle. The, the pleasure principle is pretty simple. We've seen it in kids. They want ice cream. They want a cookie. They want this thing. They want that friend. They want to watch this show. Today's day, they want the tablet. And they want it right now. And there was maybe a day in human history, many, many, many moons ago, when this was only kids and adolescents that lived by the, pre the pleasure principle. But now it's really everybody. Like there's no, no age where we seem to get past that in our American culture. So much of our American culture by any age is uh, this living by the mantra, if it feels good, do it. You do you. And the majority of us, you look at, gosh, let's watch the Super Bowl today. I didn't say this in the last, last service. The Super Bowl is one of the most powerful ways to think about discipleship, to think about our thinking, our hearts, because it's really the brightest minds spending the most money on how to influence us, if you watch the commercials. We have a pretty long list of things we want, and we're driven by it. And when we fast and we deny self for a time, and we, we kind of have this intentional gap from going from one pleasure to the next, we, we begin to realize, oh, I'm going to be okay without that thing. 
even if it's a small thing for a day. And then we begin actually to develop this, this health where when we don't get what we want in our life, when we want it, we're not mad at God. And we actually get to a place where we can be content as Paul is content and have peace through all circumstances. And it doesn't mean we don't want different things. Wanting things is not bad. But we learn the art of contentment because we're not driven and led by this engine called pleasure constantly, which a big part of our culture is. Pleasure can control us. Second thing that's happening while we fast is, this is a scary one. It's revealing what's in our hearts. And if you have any level of self-awareness at all, this is a terrifying thing that fasting is going to do. Because we often think more highly of ourselves than we ought. And as we fast, we go like, oh, that's my actual motivation. I like packaged it, wrapped it up, and I made it look all pretty. And that's the, the real like heart of the matter right there. Here's why, I do those. Here's why I do those good things. Here's why I cared about that person. Richard Foster in his book, Celebration of Discipline, says this. Fasting reveals the things that control us. I think that is so accurate and so powerful. And I've experienced it. Fasting reveals the things that control us. Fasting teaches us a lot about ourselves. How much we need pleasure to be happy, how far we are from God. It can all be quite humbling. But as these realities are brought to mind, as we're physically hungry that day, and that draws us to reflect on God and, and seek him in prayer, we have an opportunity that's really beautiful. We can accept defeat. We can say, wow, God, this is my heart. Wow, God, here's my motivations. God, here's how I'm trying to control. And then it's simple with like palms up, we go, here's my worst, Jesus. And in our weakness, we're able to recognize his strength and to choose to let him lead, to choose to let him be powerful rather than faking our way through the day thinking we might get somewhere with our own strength and smarts. Third component of, of what's happening while we fast, it's reordering our desires. Fasting for the right reasons, so not to please God, not to earn something from him, but to be with him. And in that, there's, there's reward. Again, there's a difference between earning and reward. That causes our desires to actually change. It's like kids, adults, different people. Like There's, there's a difference with, with one of my kids if I tell them to do something and actually want to do it because they're like, oh, dad's kind of smart. He knows what he's doing. Versus going, okay, I'll, I'll do it if I have to. Sometimes we approach God that way. But as we fast, and I, I genuinely, sincerely experienced this this week, you start to see the good in God's plan and you want it rather than doing it because we just think we have to because he's God and he said so. As the day continues, you can kind of watch for whatever the things are for you. Lust, greed, bitterness, gossip, those can dissipate and our desire or being controlled by them and they can be replaced by Peace, compassion, kindness, love. Comer puts it this way. God is at work deep in my person to do by his power what my willpower cannot possibly do, transform me. Yet so many of us, day after day, continue to believe the lie that we can transform ourselves. Lastly, while we're fasting, it is drawing on the power of God to overcome sin. Are you 
again, like, we, like I said earlier, stuck in a, a cycle of sin or shame? Is there something that has what the, the scriptures call a stronghold on your life that maybe like Paul, you hate and want to be done with and you've tried and you've tried and you've tried and you've failed and you've failed and you've failed and, you and then you come up with some kind of lie. You sort of believe, ah, oh, if I just do this thing instead, that'll fix it. And it doesn't. While we fast, we're drawing on the power of God to overcome sin rather than trying to overcome sin ourselves. Fasting is, is ultimately about drawing your, your energy from the power of the Spirit, from a re- relational connection to, to God himself, rather than trying. Throughout the, the scriptures, we see this, this principle. In, in the Proverbs and Psalms and the wisdom literature of the scriptures, God raises up the humble and he brings down the proud. He, he literally tells Paul, in your weakness, I am strong. Yet so often we're just pursuing strength on our own. As we come to God and give him our weakness, he always has a gift back and it's his strength. But again, only when we open the door of defeat and say, Jesus, I need you, will he come come in and begin to work in those ways. In your, your booklets, if you're in a practice group, it says this to kind of summarize that idea. Fasting is a way to turn your body from an enemy into an ally in your fight against the flesh. And it's, it's hard. It takes a toll on your body. In fact, I was, I was really pleased with fasting on, on Tuesday. I was like, this is great. Look at what God's doing within me. Until the next day, I was, I was working. And I'm sitting there. And all of a sudden, I got just... This, this, this cramp from hell in the arch of my foot. And I thought I was going to die. And it's really good that I wasn't mic'd up because it was all the flesh and the words that came out. It was not pretty. And it has me second-guessing myself for next Tuesday or whatever day I'll fast. It's hard. It makes us weak. Honestly, the, the next day I felt weak. But there's beauty. Sometimes we need help in being weak because we trust ourselves easily. And fasting is that allows us to embrace our weakness so we can embrace the strength God wants to offer. When you can't overcome sin, quit trying. So you're not gonna win that battle. Quit trying to be stronger, quit trying to be better. Let God do that. As we, we started discussing last week, I'll close with this idea, this reality, I should say, that Jesus does not command fasting. This isn't a checklist item so you can go to heaven or earn God's favor Earn his ear so that he hears your prayers. That's not what this is. You should think of it more as an invitation. Not an invitation to impress God or anyone else with your spirituality. Not an invitation to pursue holiness on your own. But consider it an invitation to watch God work. Consider it an invitation to let him do his thing, which is always good. Consider it an invitation to accept defeat. And in that, accept the beauty and goodness and power of our God working because he loves you. Hope you will practice fasting with us as we trust Jesus and what he calls us to. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are good, always. Thank you that even when you call us to things that can seem <coughs> crazy or chaotic and certainly challenging, we can know that there's, there's always good at 
the end of any road you call us to, to walk on. Help us to trust you. We want to, and sometimes we need your guidance. Reveal us, reveal to us your love, your ways. We look to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for tuning in to our teaching of the week. We are so grateful to partner with you in sharing the love of Jesus in a world that really deeply longs for it. And whether you're new here, seeking more information, looking for a church community, or considering financial partnership, go ahead and visit restorationaz.org for more details. Okay, let's continue making a difference together. So how do we do that? By remembering Jesus is the only one who is trustworthy always, no matter the moment. So press on as we continue to practice the way of Jesus.